What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Andy Bromberg is the CEO of CoinList, a trusted platform for running compliant token sales. In this conversation, we discuss crypto companies being pandemic-proof, how investor communication has to change, what the difference in city-by-city responses has been, how CoinList has been growing, and what is next for them over the coming months. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andy, and I hope you do as well. But before we get into this episode, I want to quickly touch on the two sponsors for today. The first is BlockFi. BlockFi is running an awesome special right now where if you put $250 into their interest-bearing account and hold it there for three months, they'll give you $50 in Bitcoin for free. That's right. Put $250 in, hold it for three months while you earn interest, and they'll give you $50 in Bitcoin for free. Pretty no-brainer. You can use the link in the description to sign up to get this offering. The second sponsor is Taxbit. Taxbit helps you pay your taxes. That's right. If you go to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp, you'll get 10% off getting your taxes paid with a single click. They basically hook into all your exchanges, suck in the data, you hit generate report, and it automatically generates a report exactly what the IRS needs and tells you what you owe or what you're going to get back. So head on over to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp and get your crypto taxes paid today. All right, let's get into this episode with Andy. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Andy here with me. Uh, who is um, in Phoenix right now. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. You, uh, This is your second time uh, coming on the podcast. So uh, we'll skip over all the, uh, the background. Uh, maybe just give us kind of an overview of uh, CoinList today and an update as to like where you guys are since the last time we talked. Yeah, I know that was quite a while ago um, and CoinList has changed quite a bit. Uh, back then our business was token sales for the top crypto projects. Uh, and that remains the core of the business today. Um, so starting with our first one back in 2017, Filecoin, we've done a whole bunch since, uh, Blockstack, Algorand, Nervos, uh, and, and many others. Um, most recently, Solana ran their auction uh, last week, which was very successful. Um, we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and we've got some others coming up, including Cello. Um, so that's still our core business. Since then, we've added a bunch of other business lines. Um, and the biggest one coming up now is the CoinList Trade Exchange. There's trade limits, uh, primarily those that we've ran sales for, but also other uh, crypto assets. And uh, we've turned that on and are starting to roll that out more aggressively. So, you know, from here forward, CoinList will be doing token sales, but also letting people trade uh, crypto assets liquidly on the CoinList exchange. That's what we're focused on. Got it. And so with that exchange, uh, is the whole thought process that um, basically there will be any asset that can exchange, uh, be exchanged there? So like more of a competitor to like the um, you know, Coinbase's, Binance's, Gemini's of the world, or are these very specific types of, uh, of crypto assets that'll be traded? Yeah, so it, we, we will list those large cap ones like the Bitcoin, Ethereum, because people want to trade those. And if they're on our platform, you might as well let them. But the focus for us is going to be much more on the assets that we ran sales for. So think about a Filecoin 
or a Solana or you know a Celo coming up. And the reason for that is is actually really compelling. When you participate in a token sale before the token's liquid, which is how these sales on Coinless happen, uh, at some point the token goes live, and it's typically this really messy process where you're going to get your tokens. So you you know sent a thousand dollars to some crypto project, and then a year later the project goes live, and you have to generate a wallet. They reach out to you, they collect the wallet address, they send you the tokens to that wallet. It's really messy. It's a lot of copying and pasting of wallet addresses, which is scary for people to do, uh, and rightfully so. And so what we've developed instead is a really seamless process where when you participate in one of these great projects on CoinList, then one day you just get an email that says, hey, your tokens are ready. If you want, we'll just drop them into your CoinList wallet. And so you can just say, okay. And then one day you'll get an email that says, hey, your 100 Filecoin tokens are now in your CoinList account. Just log in with the same username and password you used when you bought them. And so there's no distribution process there. And then the natural uh, next step from that is to say, and if you want to buy more or you want to sell the token bought, just hit the button right here. You're already on the Coinless platform. Your tokens are already here. No need to move them around, just transact. And so our focus is going to be on trading for those assets where because we ran the sale, all the users really easily have the tokens right there already. And we can let them transact uh, seamlessly instead of dealing with the token distribution process. Gotcha. And, and then what type of investors are you seeing uh, either participating in the initial token sales or do you think you'll see on the exchange? Are these uh, more traditional funds or the individuals, family offices? Like, What are you seeing there? Yeah, it's, it's hard to characterize because it's such a broad range. So a typical token sale will have hundreds or maybe over a thousand uh, purchasers, people buying into the sale. And those range from uh, a, a larger number of small dollar investors. Those small dollar investors could be random crypto fans anywhere over the world, or someone who works in technology and invests a little bit, or works in the space and invests a little bit. Um, and you start stepping up and you see uh, crypto funds, or crypto specific funds investing these token sales. And then you step up even higher in terms of dollar amounts and you see um, large venture funds, traditional hedge funds, uh, family offices, endowments. Um, so you get this whole spectrum. And uh, unsurprisingly, it's a, it's a larger number of, of smaller dollar investors and then a, a small number of really large investors. And that would end, that's what ends up coming together to make a, a token sale successful because um, for most of these projects, they have a, a dual goal with their token sale. One, bring capital in to fund the development of the project, but two, distribute their token really broadly to a wide array of stakeholders. Uh, and so you want to hit both of those goals and get both sides of that distribution. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And then um, in terms of where those investors are located, are these mostly US-based? Are you still seeing a lot of um, activity from uh, Asia or kind of a good mix? Total mix, yeah. So, uh, and again, it's, it's hard to characterize because it depends so much on the community of that individual project. Uh, say that it varies from 70-30 US, non-US to 30-70 US, non-US. Um, so, you know, we've got a natural user base in the United States by virtue of being an American company, um, but we have tons of users from outside the U.S. and in some sales that actually outweighs it. In fact, for some of the, pro the sales that we run, U.S. users are not even allowed to participate. So in those ones, obviously, it's 100% uh, ex-U.S., but when they are, it, it varies between, you know, 70 30 each direction. Um, and, and for the non-U.S. participants, I would say it's uh, mostly Asia. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a different, a pretty even split between kind of Southeast Asia and, and Eastern Asia, um, and then, uh, and then a bunch of European investors and then, uh, others scattered around the world. Got it. That makes sense. 
Um, and, and I guess one of the things that, um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking through, you're, you're running one of these companies, um, and then obviously talk with a lot of other founders, is this idea that like crypto companies are pandemic proof. And this speaks to one, um, the way that they work, right? So kind of a lot of remote work, uh, the way that they communicate, uh, they're based on a global basis. So uh, they're kind of used to time zone differences and things like that. Uh, but then also um, in times of global instability, there tends to be a lot more activity and interest in crypto and, and kind of digital assets in general. And so those companies are benefiting from uh, the uncertainty as well. Or, you know, one, are you seeing that? And two, maybe elaborate a little bit on kind of like how you uh, view the idea of like pandemic proof companies? Yeah, I am absolutely seeing that. Um, and I would actually take it a step further and think about it first from what's a philosophical lens that people building crypto companies, working in crypto companies, supporting this crypto movement are proponents of decentralization. I mean, that's, that's what this is all about here. And you can talk about that in very practical terms, but I actually think it, it starts with epiphany that people have when they start getting interested in this space, which is the value of decentralization. Decentralization is a paradigm for everything, that perhaps some systems can be more effective when they are decentralized, when they're distributed, when they uh, work by encouraging collaboration of a disparate set of entities instead of mandating it from a central authority. Um, and so I think a lot of people in crypto, that switch has flipped and they've said, I am pro-decentralization. I believe in the power of a decentralized set of incentives to drive great performance. We've seen that with Bitcoin, we've seen that with other crypto assets. Um, and so that then becomes a mentality. And what that then leads to is all these practical effects. These effects like being really comfortable with remote work or a partially remote team, uh, being really comfortable with uh, instability happening in certain parts of a sector and not letting that disturb the whole, the whole balance of it. Um, and so I think it, it starts with that mentality, but then absolutely on a practical level, of crypto teams are distributed, even if your team itself is not distributed. So Coinless is typically based between San Francisco and New York. We've got offices in both places. Everyone we work with is all over the world. We work with issuers and investors that are all over the entire globe. And so we're used to working in a decentralized way. Even if our team is in one place or two places, you know, we have calls on at odd hours with people in every different time zone. Um, we're used to, to that paradigm. Um, and so that certainly is true. And then I would agree. I, I think a lot of the the benefit, and we can talk more about this too, uh, a lot of the benefit that we've been pitched for, for crypto and that we pitch for crypto is benefits in time of instability. That it can function as this transnational, uh, you know, safe from issues in any single place uh, sort of asset base and technology. Uh, and so I think that the people that are in crypto, the users, the investors, community members, prepared for these times of instability and in fact, see it as an opportunity um, and, uh, and a chance to really demonstrate what crypto is, is good for. So it does feel like both crypto companies on a very practical level are pandemic proof or pandemic resistant, but also the industry as a whole um, and what we're working on feels pandemic resistant as well. Yeah, has, has anything changed for you guys and how you're actually kind of operating internally? Uh, anything you guys have done differently because of this? You know, I, obviously the team's gone remote and people are, are working from home um, and we've built some processes to support that and making sure that people are, are comfortable um, and productive uh, and also happy, uh, which is, I think, a, a really underrated point for a lot of people. You know, everyone thinks once you're remote, how do you make sure that everyone's still 
communicating and productive and, and getting uh, everything done and make sure they have the tools to do that, which is undoubtedly important. Um, but there's a second piece too that, you know, it's for us, uh, that we really enjoy being in the office. And uh, when you don't have that, it can be hard. And so, you know, how do you make sure that everyone feels really good and, and is happy and is is talking to everyone just even socially and, and encouraging that. So we've, we've built some stuff around that and, and um, are working on that. But in terms of our planning from a business perspective, um, it stayed pretty much on track. I mean, we, again, we ran the Solana auction, uh, you know, last week and it was great and people participated and it sold out and it was a really successful offering in the pits of all this craziness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got the cello uh, auction coming up and it's still on track. We're, you know, launching more and more features, the exchange. And, uh, and for us, it's just a matter of marching forward again, because, uh, you know, we're not working in the hospitality space. Um, and if we were, we would be changing our plans. And I you know, feel awful for, for friends who have had to do so in a space like that. But again, for crypto, if it is uh, resistant at some level, let's keep marching forward and, and try and use this and not grow. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, um, kind of this balance. I feel like uh, it's become cool uh, to have the work from home and kind of remote culture. Uh, and there's a lot of benefits for it, obviously. Uh, but there is still this element of uh, the social component of going into the office, the camaraderie, the, the kind of um, human interaction. And uh, I know there's a lot of companies that are trying to figure out, like, how do you build some of that into products or, or allow for the serendipity of an office and things like that. Um, but, but I do hear a lot of founders saying it, it's like a, we have the capabilities of doing remote work or work from home uh, if people choose to do that. But we also see the benefit of in, you know, kind of everyone coming together. Uh, and it sounds like you're kind of like right down the fairway on, on uh, balancing those two things. Yeah, it's, you know, and it, I think you can build a great company in any direction. There's lots of evidence um, with that. But part of it is just the, the team that you end up building, the, the people that are working together. And and uh, and for us, that social interaction is important and um, and helps people stay fired up and, and focused on the on the work at hand uh, and and well aligned with each other. And so yeah, we've had to figure out how to how to work with that. I mean, what we we've been doing these virtual happy hours where everyone gets on Zoom and hangs out with each other. Actually, this week we we realized we should really make it a happy hour. So we, we sent everyone on the team uh, a little bit of money to go out and buy a, a drink of choice and, uh, and, you know, sit there all together on this, on this happy hour. Um, and so it's just those little things that I think can, can make a little bit of a difference and get everyone excited about, you know, being together, even in some more limited virtual way. I love that. What, uh, it, any update as to what people went and bought? We'll find out, uh, early next week we just uh those those dollars just went out so we'll find out everyone's keeping a surprise until we we get on the call together. i'm sure there'll be some, some show and tell I, I uh you're a brave man i don't know what uh whether to be fearful of what people are going to buy or, or excited <laughs> um so we've, we've got some good folks on the team yeah, so um, you you are uh, normally based in San Francisco, and then you're in Phoenix now. Maybe give us an update just on like what are you seeing actually on the ground in those two cities um, around uh, coronavirus and kind of the the reaction um, and, and maybe how it's affecting businesses in both those areas. Yeah, yeah. So it was interesting. I I was actually in New York most recently um, until about a couple weeks ago. We're we're recording this on April third here. Um, and, uh, and it was mid, mid March when I left New York. And so that was right when New York, uh, kind of shut down when, uh, when everything, uh, all the restaurants closed. Um, and, 
and I think what I saw there was this like densely packed city um, that was recognizing how dangerous it is to be densely packed when there's a pandemic and shutting down. And so, you know, from our team there and, uh, and from friends there, uh, it's just a, it's, it's a odd dynamic to be in a city where so much of what makes the city, the city is everything going on there and then not having anything going on. And so it, it feels, uh, you know, from, from talking to people there, it's, it's a challenging time to be there. Certainly in San Francisco, where I, I also, I live, um, you know, I'm hearing a very similar thing that it's it's largely shut down. The, the, the virus has not impacted San Francisco as much as it has New York yet. Um, but, uh, but San Francisco was early on shutting down a lot of things and out of an abundance of caution. Um, and again, not as densely packed as, as New York, but certainly still kind of city, city scale and, and city packed. And I came to Phoenix um, and it's interesting here because, well, there's certainly a shelter in place now as of this week. Um, and, you know, restaurants are, are shut down or, you know, only doing delivery. Um, a bit more of a spread out city for a lot of a lot of parts of the city. And so the impact has not been felt quite as severely. There's also relatively few cases um, of the virus. Um, so it's it is it's shelter in place like San Francisco and New York. But by virtue of it just being more spread out, I think. It, it has less of an impact on people's daily lives. Uh, you know, people are out running, biking, uh, doing what they would, would normally do. It's just now people aren't, aren't going to the office as of this past week. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think that the question for me is where will clear up first and kind of open back up? Um, and is it going to be a place like San Francisco or New York that took really aggressive measures early on is able to kind of contain the virus and opens up first while everyone else is kind of battling this longer tail of it. Um, or, uh, or is it a place like Phoenix? The impact was never felt that severely in the first place and they're able to kind of open the doors back up before the, the more dense cities do. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting time and, and interesting to uh, kind of see the, the contrast between these different places. Yeah, the, the contrast between San Francisco and New York is really interesting to me because uh, San Francisco definitely took it much more seriously much sooner. Um, I had a couple of friends who, uh, who, who came to New York, uh, and this is probably right about like second week in March or so, and one of them made a comment that basically was like, can't believe that no one here is even talking about this. Like Grand Central's packed, the subways are packed, like nobody is even aware of this. Uh, and at that point, I think San Francisco uh, maybe hadn't completely shut down, but was like moving in that direction pretty aggressively. Uh, and then here in New York, it took another week and a half or so before people said, hey, maybe I shouldn't go you know, on the subway or I shouldn't go stand around you know, hundreds of other people at once. Um, and so, you know, I don't know really why that is, uh, but, but it just was a very distinct difference between the two cities for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I also, I also don't know why that was. Um, I have hypotheses that, um, you know, San Francisco has a high concentration of people that are, uh, that are highly attuned to these sort of sorts of kind of global events. And New York probably actually has a higher raw number of those people by virtue of being much bigger. But in terms of the concentration and density of people that are paying attention to potential risk factors and everything else, I think that you could make the argument that San Francisco has a higher higher density in the population. So the alarm started to sound and, uh, and people looked at that and said, you know, this is, uh, this is concerning. And 
um, and advocated for some some action to be taken. Um, and there's also an argument that you know at the time, obviously the the virus was concentrated in China, um, and San Francisco is much closer for travel there. Um, and so uh, so it could be too that there was just kind of more information flow or more obvious um, concern there coming between you know the West Coast and and China um, as opposed to China and New York. Yeah, there's a, a component, uh, one of Plano's friends jokingly said, uh, coronavirus, I ride the J train every day. Like, if I'm not getting that. And, and, and uh, you know, there's a kind of truth in every good joke, which uh, essentially is saying, look, you know, New Yorkers, I think in general, kind of take this approach of like, man, it ain't killed me yet. And so, you know, it's not going to happen now, uh, which, which uh, in the face of a pandemic, it ends up being ignorance, right? But, uh, but, but um, I think it's just a mentality difference, just as much as it was kind of an information flow as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, what's the, been the impact on like the fundraising environment for you guys, uh, communication with investors? Like anytime you get in these, like, I'll just call it kind of a time of uncertainty. I think a lot of things change and people focus on, you know, are you physically going to the office or are you not? But it's also the way that you communicate with your customers, with the investors for you guys, um, both in the company and then also investors in the projects that you guys are helping fundraise for. Like, how's all of that changed? Yeah, so I, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting balance because like I was saying, a lot of it for us is um, at some level, business as usual. Let's keep running these sales. Let's keep rolling out this exchange. Let's keep marketing. And to the points you're making earlier, you know, for a lot of our, our customers, they're saying, you know, let's keep going. We're, we're excited. And, and for the, the individuals on the platform, the investors and traders, they're saying, let's keep going. We believe in crypto. And there's there's this interesting dynamic I see sometimes um, in crypto among the kind of the true crypto community, um, where when crypto's up, when the market's up, everyone's shouting and cheering and saying, you know, crypto's up, we're, we're winning, which is great. And then when the market's down, everyone's looking at buying season. You know, there's a sale on, on crypto right now, and now's the time to get in. And, you know, I, I think this is kind of a unique attribute of crypto as an asset class because so many of the people in the community are such idealists with such a long view of the space. It almost doesn't matter what's happening at the, you know, in price levels, they're just going to have a different positive reaction. Either it's up, we're winning, or it's down, it's buying season. It's not, you know, time to get in at a discount. And, uh, and we're definitely seeing that from, you know, users on our platform that they just see this as a chance to, to get in when everyone else is, is dismissing, uh, the space and uh, and I think you're you're certainly seeing that in the markets too. That after the big drop a few weeks ago in uh, in crypto prices, it's up. It's been kind of steadily rising, uh, despite you know all the chaos in the world, um, or, or perhaps because of all the chaos in the world. Um, and so uh, you know for us, a lot of it's business as usual. So when we think about communicating with investors um, or fundraising, you know we we are we don't have any plans to fundraise imminently. We're fortunate to. Uh, you know, be doing well business and and uh, be running these sales and generating revenue. And and we raised a great round last year, um, led by Polychain with uh, Jack Dorsey and Collaborative Fund and a bunch of other people. Um, and so we're in a good position. Um, but the question I think when you're talking to investors that you already have uh, in your company or um, or the board is, uh, okay, well, what what's the downside scenario here? How bad could this be? And you know, because the assumption is if things are kind of neutral or, or good, then you're in good shape, obviously. 
But what's the worst case scenario? If this pandemic lasts a really long time, if it outlasts people's optimism about the space and willingness to believe in crypto as a hedge against this, uh, if it really crushes uh, the global economy at a level where crypto is just inevitably impacted as, as yet another asset, um, what happens then? And I think our view there is uh, you got to be careful. You know, in times like these, you don't want to be overspending. You don't want to be uh, kind of burning cash left and right. Um, but at the same time, uh, you do want to be seizing opportunities that are in front of you. And I think, you know, three, six months down the road, we'll have a much more clear picture of, of where this is going and and what's going to happen to data is helpful. You know, it, it feels like it's been years since this pandemic started. But, you know, we're talking about a couple months here, really, in the in the kind of United States and in the public eye. Um, and so, you know, three months from now, it'll a much more clear picture. And so a lot of the communications for us have been, we're staying the course, we're pushing forward. Um, let's figure out uh, what we need to do to prepare for the worst case scenario here and, uh, and make sure that, you know, that doesn't cause issues. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it, it's one of these weird things. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody about it from a small business perspective, right? So let's say you're that local restaurant and uh, the pandemic happens, there's a government mandated shutdown. And if you're that small business owner and they said, hey, it's a two week shutdown, you would make an analysis. Okay, how much cash do I have? What's my you know, um, cost? Could I survive for two weeks, continue to pay my staff? Obviously, we're going to open up in two weeks. And, and you could kind of make some uh, educated decisions based on uh, parameters that they gave you. What instead is happening is basically shut down your business and we don't know when it's going to open back up. And that's a whole different ballgame because now there's no kind of true analysis of how much capital do I have, you know, what my costs are and, and, uh, and if I ever will open back up, right? Because there's a lot of businesses that basically just going to run out of money, even if it, they, they fire 80% of their staff, et cetera. And so for you guys, obviously being a technology company that isn't, you know, um, kind of susceptible to being shut down like those restaurants and other small businesses are, how have you thought about kind of a, the strength of the balance sheet um, and, and kind of, are you preparing for kind of six months of this, 18 months of this, and, and just kind of talk me through the, the logic um, and the frameworks that you've used to kind of think through that. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd actually point out one more big difference between, um, you know, a business like a restaurant and a business like a startup um, like us is uh, cash on hand. So I, I saw a chart the other day um, about the average cash on hand, mm -hmm. like how many days of operating expenses do different businesses and industries have? And it did not list tech startups, but it listed a whole bunch of more traditional businesses. And they ranged from, I think restaurants were under a month of operating expenses on hand on average. And the highest listed was like 46 days. I think it was real estate businesses have like on average 40 days of cash on hand. For all of these businesses, their cash on hand is, you know, between let's call it 10 days and two months generously. Um, and that's just because of how these businesses work. They're cash flow businesses. So they, every month they're planning to make a little more than they, uh, than they spend um, and keep going. But they've got ongoing costs, even when they're shut down, like rent and other costs um, and dwindles really quickly. And startups, on the other hand, venture funded startups, I should say, uh, carry with them a default assumption of having a lot of cash on hand because the assumption for venture funded startups is that you, most of them mostly lose money for a long time until maybe at some point they start making money. 
And I would say usually that's a curse, right? Usually here, you, you know, most startups are burning money every month, burning, burning, burning. And then every you know, year they have to go and raise again and, and you know, stock up the, the war chest and then keep going. But in this case, it's official models that wasn't very close to dying has six, 12, 18, 24 months of runway in the bank because that's what they have to do anyway. Uh, and, uh, and in this case, that's, you know, it, it makes it less of a day-to-day -day decision where, you know, a matter of seven days makes an enormous difference because you probably have six to 18 to 24 months of, of cash in the bank. Whereas for a restaurant, obviously seven days, if you've got 15 uh, in the bank is, is a, is a life-changing um, amount. Um, so that's, that's one dynamic, you know, for us, um, again, I think it's about preparing for the downside. We're, we're in a comfortable cash position. We weren't going to raise anytime soon. Um, and, you know, our view, like I said, is, you know, let's keep expenses down. You know, not let's not start ramping up spending really aggressively in these next few months. Keep expenses down. Um, and then, you know, in the next three months, reevaluate. Okay, where are we at right now? How long do we think this will last? Once this kind of initial shock dies down, does it look like we're we're in this for 18 months? In which case, you know, what do we have to do? We have to go a little more money to make sure that we've got 24 or 30 months of runway if we think we're going to be in a, a real global recession for 18 months. Um, how do we address that? Um, but for the time being, we're looking at it and we're saying, you know, this this feels like a, a you know, a manageable position for us. Um, and, uh, and there's also, you know, government assistance that startups can theoretically apply for, um, assuming it all gets sorted out, where you might get another month or two of of uh, of runway by virtue of these these government loans as they get processed. So, um, so that's another angle too. But yeah, for us, you know, don't wrap up spending. Let's check in a couple months and, and see where we're at and and, uh, and push forward from there. Yeah, it, it's really interesting too. I think because um, the dynamic you described about like startups are kind of already in the mindset of like we need runway because we either don't have revenue or, or we're losing money. Um, and what I've seen a lot of them do, uh, I, I felt like there was one week there where everyone turned around to every service provider, they said, and they were just like, give us a discount. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that right. was for everything from rent to, uh, le legal fees. I mean, just everything. And it was almost like, uh, there was this playbook that venture investors, um, kind of knew they share that information with the founders and then founders went and executed on it. Um, how has the communication with investors been and, and kind of, are there specific lessons that you've learned? Um, and you don't have to name who the investor is, but just things that they've been able to, um, kind of share with you that you think, uh, other founders would benefit from understanding as you kind of continue going through this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the most obvious one, um, and I say obvious, but it's also something that I, I think people need to be reminded of in the startup community often and investors sometimes say like, wow, yeah, is uh, don't die, right? This is like, it, I mean, the most blindingly obvious piece of advice out there, but it's almost like people forget sometimes that startups are expected to be a windy, bumpy path. Exactly what you're doing today is probably not exactly what you'll be doing in five years. And if you're around in five or 10 years, it means you figured out something that works. So odds are what you need to do is stay alive, keep pushing forward, maintain your advantages um, and, and not die. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy to say, go, go, go growth at all costs. Startups are all about growth, which is all true. Um, but 
the the thing that kills startups is running out of and really nothing else. Uh, and so, uh, so I, I do think that's a, just a important thing to remember on, on the more tactical level. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do if you're in a position. You're seeing teams do this right now. Obviously there have been some layoffs, which is um, really sad. Um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who was uh, talking about how, how they've encouraged people to offer kind of salary for equity swaps. So, you know, can you let people take a reduction in salary and save some burn and, you know, reward them with upside instead. Um, and if you're in a position where you need to cut burn, that makes a ton of sense too. Um, people are getting really creative. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the same time, we've seen this before, like, you know, Sequoia sent out that letter a month ago or whenever that was saying, prepare for the worst. And, you know, everyone should read that and should also go back and read uh, the letter they sent in 2008 when, uh, when that was happening and, uh, and think about those considerations. So um, it, so much of it depends on, on where the startup is and cash position is and what the market position is, what market you're in, um, whether you're in a pandemic resistant one like crypto or you're a, a not pandemic resistant one like the hospitality tech space um, and, and all that matters. But number one, first and foremost, for all companies, do not die. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy how the simplest advice is actually the most important. Um, and to your point, people kind of lose sight of that. Uh, it also brings the question, uh, did corporate executives forget that, right? When you, when you kind of look, my favorite example is obviously the airlines where they spent like you know, 96% of free cash flow, uh, which is a way to return value back to shareholders. But if you end up dying at the end of all of that, then you kind of violated rule number one. And so all that shareholder value, you know, you basically wipe it all out at the end. Um, seems like it's kind of a, a cliff that you're just accelerating towards to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on the airlines. Uh, I, well, I think it's a, it's an issue of incentives, right? So, so first of all, there is an effective that a belief that maybe no no matter how badly they mess up, they will not be dead because they will be saved, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if you know that that's backstopping you or probably backstopping you, that's going to wildly change your behavior um, because you know you can do whatever you want and you'll you know that you'll be okay or you think that you'll probably be okay. But I think more importantly than that, um, there's a question of incentives for the people that are making the decisions. So if you're a startup founder you most likely own a big chunk of your company. And if you're making those decisions, uh, your net worth and your success is tied up in the success of the company. That's like the company dies, that equity that you have is worth nothing. So, you know, you've got this really, and, and most likely that's a meaningful thing for you. Uh, for a lot of these airline executives, uh, They don't own a big one. And in fact, most of their, their cash, most of their compensation has been out regularly. And their view, you could argue from an incentive perspective, is when the times are good, get as much as you can, right? Because what, they're, what they do is they, uh, they effectively go and get stock-based compensation out of the company and then conduct these share buybacks with free cash flow and increase the value of their ownership when times are good. And, uh, and you can argue that there's an incentive there to just get as much as you can. That's actually, if you want to make as much money as possible as an airline executive, the smartest thing to do is get it, 
massive amounts of stock-based compensation for the company doing well, make the company do well by spending all of its money on stock buybacks and just juice your compensation. And then things will blow up at some point, but you will have made your penny, you know, when the times are good and, and you, you can, uh, you can walk away or, or, or push through. Um, and so it speaks to me more about the less about people forgetting and more about just the power of incentives that as a startup founder, you have very different incentives than an airline executive. Um, and there's, there's kind of a beauty in, in how startups are structured for that reason that you're, you're in and, uh, and you need the thing to work for, for you to be successful. Yeah, the uh, the really smart executives all left at the end of 2019 or kind of January 2020, right? That the ones who kind of got out and aren't, uh, you know, being implicated in a lot of this. Um, and, and we saw a lot of executives leave, but uh, it makes you question the ones who kind of stuck around if they just mistimed it. But uh, now they're kind of stuck in the stuck in the sand, if you will. Yeah, well, I mean, someone's got to be in those seats, and uh, <laughs> and at some point when a bunch of others leave, you might be saying, well. Maybe it won't be as bad as they all thought. And uh, and now here's my chance to, you know. And uh, yeah, they may have gotten it wrong. For sure. Um, well, so what's uh, at Coinless, what's your pitch to uh, to projects as they're uh, looking to fundraise and stuff? Kind of what, what's the pitch now? And uh, for all the ones that are listening, what, what, what can you uh, kind of explain to them? Yeah, the pitch uh, at a very high level is very simple. Uh, Coinless is where the best projects run their token sales. And why do they do that? Because one, um, we do a really good job for them and we handle all of the work that we do really, really well. Two, we do a lot of work. We've built up a ton of systems over the past two and a half uh, years to support a successful token sale. And we've got a big community of people on the platform that see Coinless as a really trusted place and a place where the best projects run their token sales. And so all of those factors together um, increase the success of an already great project um, that is trying to run an effective sale. Um, you know, some of the stuff that we do for them includes uh, obviously handling compliance due diligence on the investors. So KYC, AML, accreditation, we built out these incredibly robust systems to support people all over the world um, and go through those processes. We help sometimes with uh, marketing for certain sales and are able to help bring our community to bear um, to support the project. Um, and, uh, and that's really exciting. We help with analytics on the investors coming in and, and you know, reporting of what's going on and who's coming in and um, how to reach out to those people, how to increase uh, the success of the offering. We help with the distribution and getting the tokens out to those, those purchasers um, at the end of the day. And so for us, it's a really full stack approach. We want to abstract away all the stuff that teams shouldn't be spending their time on because they're only going to do this once or twice um, and, uh, and do it for them and let them focus on building a great community and building a great uh, project and, and a great go-to-market strategy. Um, and, you know, for us, uh, every great project that, works with us and that we're fortunate to partner with makes the pitch even stronger for the next one. And, uh, and, you know, we see that over and over again. So, um, teams usually come to us and they say, um, we're interested, how can we work together? And, and if they're a great, we get really fired up and we do everything in our power to make them successful, both in the scope of those services that I was just talking about, but also informally figuring out ways to help them and, and, uh, and pour more gas in the fire. Got it. And are there specific types of projects that you feel like uh, are best positioned to, to leverage what you guys have built? Or is there anything specific in the like, criteria you look for or, or just structure or anything like that? 
we're, we're pretty flexible. Um, I think the, the biggest piece that ends up uh, disqualifying projects from working with us, if they otherwise have a great team and, and an interesting product and a strong go to market and all of that, is if we don't see the case for them needing to have a token. And that's, those are kind of the toughest conversations where when we, we sit down with a the team, they're, again, fantastic team, great go to market, really compelling product. Like all these signs are pointing the right direction. And we look and we just say, I, we just don't think this needs a token. And we think it could be done much more effectively without, uh, without a token because we don't think every company and every single application uh, does need its own, its own token. Um, and those are the ones that we say sometimes, you know, this is a tough no for us, but we just, we just can't pull the trigger on this. Um, so the ones that we're most excited about are the ones where there's a really telling use case for a token and, and uh, decentralization and, and, you know, blockchain technology are gonna make a big difference for the success of the project. And those are the ones we really wanna support. So a lot of time that ends up being layer one projects. So we've worked on a bunch of great layer one projects, um, but also, application level ones then can, can make a compelling case for using a token in their ecosystem. Got it. And so where can projects that, um, that would be interested in learning more about the fundraising process go? And then also what about individuals uh, on the exchange side um, as they kind of are waiting for that to come out? Yeah. So uh, if you, well, anyone is welcome to reach out to team at coinlist.co at any time. If you're a project uh, looking to, to engage, that's probably the best way to do it. And we'll get right back to you and, and get a conversation going. Um, and talk about how we could how we could help and learn more about what you're doing. If you if you're a project and you're reaching out to team at coinlist.co, I would say um, definitely include some information. Let us know what you're up to, uh, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll we'll dig in and, and do our research. Um, if you are a user looking to trade or or just participate, um, coinlist.co/trade go. You can sign up right now. We um, are just starting to roll this out, so it's. First of all, from an asset perspective, so it's um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Algorand, USDC, and then US dollars on an off ramp if you've got, you want to pay with your bank account. Um, and it's also limited from a UI perspective. So it's a really simple kind of click and trade interface where you say, I want to buy one Bitcoin. It shows you a price. You click OK and you buy it. Um, but in the next couple of months, we'll be rolling out both more assets, um, which we're really excited about, and also uh, kind of a pro level interface with real order book and, and, uh, and a more uh, advanced trading view uh, that you can use if you are a more sophisticated trader. So all of that's coming in the next couple of months. That's awesome. No, I, I love it. Um, last question for you before we wrap up. Uh, any cool quarantine plans? Any, anything that you got uh, in the uh, next couple of weeks that uh, you think is cool? Uh, you know, I have been using this. Um, nothing particularly cool. Although I've, I've got a friend hosting a, a virtual uh, DJ set tonight, uh, and uh, and you know, there's lots of good good virtual parties happening. Um, I've been using this as a chance to reset a little bit. Um, you know, I've found that without having 60 minute in person meetings all day, um, I've got more time to, you know, uh, catch up with people, dig in on on kind of deep work and things that I've been putting off for a long time. Um, exercise, all the good stuff in life, um, and uh, and so frankly, I, I think you know, well, certainly acknowledging all the all the, the terrible stuff happening around the world, um, having a chance to, to reset a little bit and, you know, maybe not try and do crazy, uh, crazy interesting things all the time and, and just 
take it a little, little more slowly for a few weeks has been uh, a really pleasant change of gears. And um, we'll see how long, we'll see how I feel longer it lasts, but for the time being, uh, a reset's a good thing. Yeah, it's one of these things where uh, I, I jokingly say like the world's been forced to um, do remote work. And I wonder how many people are gonna be excited about going back into an office, right? We talked about some of like the social benefits, but I think actually a lot of people are like, wait a minute, I like this way better. I like not having meetings. I like being able to go work out. I like being able to, you know, not go on my hour commute both ways every day. Like all of these components um, that just it would have been a hard to kind of uh, experience uh, cold turkey without something like this happening. And so that may be some of the uh, the benefit of all of this, um, you know, coming out the other side of it. I think I, I think you're right. I also, I'm very sensitive to the, the time. So I think everyone, much everyone is gonna love a week of remote work. Uh, I think fewer people are gonna love a month of remote work. And I think fewer still are gonna love six months of remote work. Um, and so seeing uh, seeing how that all shakes out and, and how people's perspectives change depending on how long we're we're in this situation uh, is something else to looking out for. But I agree, everyone everyone benefits from a little little time at home. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Andy. Listen, I appreciate you uh, jumping on and doing this. Um, anyone that uh, is interested, go check out Coinlist.co, and uh, we'll have to do it again as you guys uh, keep progressing here and eventually get that uh, trading platform up. Sounds like a plan. Good luck and, and stay safe out there. Yeah, you as well. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.